Hey everyone, Brian Weber here. Thanks for listening. We have a great episode in store for you today. Before that, I need to ask you for a small favor that won't cost anything but a minute of your time, and it would mean the world to this show and our guests. Somehow, this show about the founders of the modern cannabis industry is not showing up when searching for cannabis or entrepreneur in many of the podcast platforms. That's obviously a big problem for a show about cannabis entrepreneurs. One of the things we can do to solve that is with reviews. Giving just one minute of your time to submit a review of this show, using the words cannabis and entrepreneur in it, will help us get found so we can keep sharing these amazing founders' journeys. For new listeners, I really hope you consider this after enjoying this show. For our continuing listeners, if you can do this right now, I'd greatly appreciate it. Go ahead, hit pause. I'll wait right here. Thank you. We came to market in summer 2018 and built the business in about 100 dispensaries. But I will tell you, we learned so many hard lessons that nobody could have prepared us for. There are the things that we thought in the beverage world you could easily do in the dispensary world that you can't. So like demoing is a key critical component of launching a new beverage brand. You can't stand in a dispensary and pour THC drinks out. It's illegal. So standing there giving pamphlets out or leaflets out became a challenge and very hard to convert people that walk into the dispensary to go to buy our little $8 bottle. Also, what we learned was is, you know, look, when you when you sell your beverage brand in Whole Foods or, you know, places like that, those those people that work in Whole Foods, they become your best salesmen. They, they wear your t-shirts, your baseball caps. They drink you at their lunch. Well, you go to a dispensary, the bud tender is supposed to be that, like your gatekeeper. But trying to convince a bud tender who basically consumes about 300 milligrams a day of THC, mostly not in a drink, but in flour or other forms, to go recommend something they don't do themselves to somebody walking in saying, I've got pain, I can't sleep, I've got arthritis, what do I take? They they, they send them right to what they should take, which is probably not a beverage, an enjoyable, sociable, gulpable experience. So we learned really hard over one year to the tune of almost a million dollars we deployed to, to build the business that it is gonna be really hard to build a multi-million dollar THC beverage brand. Welcome to Lit Up, a founder's journey, a show about the entrepreneurial pioneers of the modern cannabis industry and the organizations they're building. Each episode features the founder themselves, sharing their life's journey that inspired the entrepreneur within to create the most impactful ideas in modern cannabis. Hey everyone, Brian Weber here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Lit Up, a founder's journey. Before Eric Schnell was actually Eric, He attended Woodstock, in utero. Raised by his hippie parents in the Boston area, his early years were in an ashram. The respect for our bodies, animals, and the earth were values embedded early and consistently in his life. Seeds for becoming an entrepreneur were planted early on too. Once, as a punishment, his mom withheld his allowance. His eight-year-old self was so upset by this, he vowed to never be dependent upon anyone else for money again. During his time at Northeastern, Eric turned what started as promoting fraternity parties into a $200,000 a year income, all before graduating. After a stint as a broker-dealer on Wall Street, he needed a change. With his ability to promote, he pivoted back to his root values, taking a position at a family-run natural supplement company, trading a Rolex for a feather duster. That early venture led to his entrance into the ultra-competitive beverage industry. With early success and many ups and downs to follow, he eventually started Beyond Brands, an incubator and accelerator to launch mission-driven brands, including Mood 33. This first foray into the cannabis market brought a whole new set of challenges and lessons to be learned. Eric Schnell has an amazing founder's journey. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for having me today. I'm super excited to be on and to share a bit of my journey and uh, how uh, Mood 33 came to be as a brand and kind of the energy and passion behind it. Um, so yeah, so Mood 33 um, has been out for uh, two years now on the market. We started as a THC-infused sparkling tonic line with three SKUs um, in California dispensaries in mid-2018. 
um, and built uh, the business and got a lot of experience in what it's like to kind of be in the cannabis, hemp, CBD, beverage space. And uh, we could talk about some of the uh, the challenges and also some of the successes um, that we had in California. But um, when the farm bill was passed in December of 2018, that was a major uh, milestone um, in our company's short, you know, young history to, to, to pivot um, to an opportunity with a CBD beverage portfolio of six SKUs, which we have now at the Mood 33 brand. And you can see those on our mood33.com website. But we've basically created um, from the beginning, which was THC to now CBD infused um, herbal iced teas in a six functional SKU format. And we are headquartered in New York City, which is kind of what we call our beachhead market. Um, and we uh, launched uh, that portfolio right before Thanksgiving and uh, six months in the market now, even with the COVID situation here. Um, fortunately, you know, we're deemed an essential business. We're a beverage company selling to grocery stores um, that are open. So we've actually had a pretty interesting couple months and, you know, what what we thought was going to maybe be um, a, a hiccup in the business has ended up putting us into D to C and e-com a little earlier than expected, which has been great. We could talk about that early success and also which SKUs of ours are resonating right now in the COVID environment and being a CBD brand, certainly um, in this environment, a lot of people looking for stress relief and looking for a little more happiness uh, throughout their day. And I think we're delivering that in our unique portfolio of functional uh, products. I found your story to be quite fascinating for a variety of reasons, because I wanted to have, you know, just looking at over your background in history, beverage markets is an insanely hard market to work in and then layer on top of the challenge of, of working within um, the CBD space and regulations there and, and also, um, the legal cannabis market as well. So it touches on so many different amazing things and we're going to get into your founder's journey today. But as with every show, I always want to start it back is like, how does someone who needs to be so driven and so tenacious become to be who they are? So let's throw it back. Let's, uh, Let's throw it back to the beginning. Let's talk about your childhood. Let's talk about your folks. Let's talk about where you grow up and, you know, what were those early stages of, uh, of young Eric? That, that's a, <laughs> we can <laughs> spend a couple podcasts on that, but uh, I was, I'm sure, you know, that every entrepreneur, you know, had that aha moment or that light that shined somewhere at some point where they said, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I am going to wake up tomorrow and reinvent myself and tell a different story that I am Eric Schnell, the founder of Mood 33 CBD infused beverages, and that story is uh, is is only one a, a founder can conceive, you know, from their own belief systems and past history and passion to create, you know, something um, new in the world. So mine uh, begins, um, and it's very appropriate for plant medicine uh, as a business or a journey to be on. My story begins as a hippie kid in 1970s. Born in 1970, uh, was actually in my mother's uh, stomach at Woodstock. She was a flower child, had me at 16 and a half. Uh, we, she was basically running around Harvard Square following Timothy Leary and Ram Dass in the late 60s, because um, I grew up in Boston, and, um, and found her way into LSD first and um, kind of put her on a path of wanting to find out spiritually everything she could about herself. And, uh, and then found her way into cannabis, probably right around that time. So, sounds so, appropriate right around Woodstock as well, yeah. yeah, yeah so, <laughs> Very 60s so, story. <laughs> so, so my upbringing, um, honestly, the first four years of my life, we lived in an ashram in Boston, meditating with the, um, a guru that we had in India um, that came over and started um, a group called Divine Light Mission. So basically, my very earliest upbringing was rooted in um, Eastern spiritual wisdom, ashram living, communal living, vegetarianism, before it was even, I think, called vegetarianism, um, uh, and respect for the environment and uh, respect for plants and plant medicine. My mother actually conceived me, uh, believe it or not, on an LSD trip. Um, that's when she got pregnant. Wow. And, uh, that's, and a, she that's a great share on that one. That's, must, that's a whole side story there. There's <laughs> a side story. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't know that early on until I, I did DMT about six years ago and told her about the journey in the special place. I went. And she was like, oh, well, that was the kind of LSD I was doing at the time. And that's where we used to go to that realm. <laughs> so. So she actually That's great did to have a great open relationship with your parents like that. <laughs> this is again how I found myself so friendly and fond of cannabis as a plant. Um, you know, but kind of fast forwarding the early years where 
you know, as a young hippie household in Boston, we were very considered weird and not the normal house in the neighborhood. We had pictures of gurus and incense burning and, you know, Friday night satsang at our house. And I think a lot of our regular neighbors who were more mainstream wanted to call the cops on us, <laughs> especially when in 1977, Jimmy Carter put um, President Jimmy Carter put uh, solar panels on the White House. And uh, my dad thought that was a great idea, too, to be a respectful environment and get some free energy from the sun. So we put up three solar panels. And that's actually when the neighbors called the cops on us and the police came and told us to take them down. We eventually what, got them back what up. Was, what was so wrong with the solar panels? I don't. Of all I the things. <laughs> at, at that time, I think they thought that it would cause an explosion to blow up the neighborhood. So, I mean, you weren't walking around in, uh, in tinfoil hats. That is interesting. So you guys were vegetarian before it was cool. You guys were green before it was, uh, before it was mainstream. I think that's awesome. Yeah, we were smoking cannabis way ahead of its time. So the, the <laughs> cannabis thing, so the aha moment for or the fond moment for cannabis for me uh was i think it was 12 or 13 years old i was going through my mother's drawers who knows probably trying to steal some money or something and i found this tinfoil wrapper and i opened up the tinfoil wrapper and inside was basically weed and i had never seen weed i didn't really because they didn't really smoke in the house around us so i didn't really know a lot about it and i said well, what is this she said oh that's weed you can call it cannabis or marijuana and um, it comes from nature. You know, God put it on this planet to help us, you know, on our journey. Not only us, but animals also chew it and eat it. And, you know, and someday if you're ever going to do something that changes your state of mind, I'd rather you do this than alcohol. So as a very young kind of preteen, I was like, wait a minute. My mother just told me I could do something that's illegal. And I should rather do that than get in that state of vibrational, you know, mindset than drink alcohol, which she explained to me, alcohol brings you down. It causes you problems. They call it spirits because spirits enter your body and, you know, take over and make you do all sorts of bad things. On cannabis, no one ever gets in drunk driving accidents. No one ever gets in bar fights. Generally, you're more loving. You want to talk about the world and consciousness and the universe. It's just like, that's the kind of, that's the kind of reason me and your dad do it. So I was like, all right. So that was my early aha moment that, well, this plant, has helped my mother somehow. And it's part of my early history as a child. You know, maybe someday in the future, I will try it. And, That's amazing. You you were a teenager at this time, I'm assuming, right? Barely. That was when I was 13. Yeah. So I didn't actually try cannabis for the first time after that until um, college when I was 18. And the truth is, it made me think so much. Um, I didn't want to go out in public. I wanted to stay and just talk to my friends all about the universe and about aliens and about galaxies and how we all got Solving here. Solving the world's problems right there. That That's, was it. You weren't getting into bar fights. You were hanging out and having a good time. Now, was it just, yeah. Was it? were you an only child or was it uh, no, two No, two little, two little sisters. Oh, no. And uh, we, we basically were brought up in a house where my mother told all of us, don't ever eat anything that has a face on it. Don't eat things with faces. They have mothers. So we were basically, that's how we were vegetarian, if not vegan, you know, as vegan, kids. Then. Again, way back before this stuff was considered kind of cool like it is today. What were you into as uh, and that's an amazing story. And I think that's just like those are values I share and a lot of people in this industry share as well. What were some of your what did your parents do for a living? Uh, my mother was a hypnotherapist, psych psychotherapist. So her practice was hypnotizing people to take them into their past lives mm -hmm. and then figure out traumas or situations that maybe carried through energetically through reincarnations into this life. So that was her practice. Very appropriate, you know, yeah, yeah. See, uh, for her personality. She found her calling too. <laughs> yeah. Um, my dad had an insurance company, so nothing to do with any of that. That was the that was his business. I got you. But you had a business. Yeah. Did you ever get a business sense from him as well? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that was, you know, the business sense was instilled that my dad was an entrepreneur, owned his own insurance agency, and owned real estate. And so I did. I definitely grew up in a, feel, a family that our, our income was always derived for how well my father's businesses did that month or that year which was yeah. so, so i grew up very in the mindset that being an entrepreneur is okay and it's okay to work for yourself it's okay to make money that's not a bad yeah. word we got yeah but but to, but, yeah. but i'll tell you the aha moment of being an entrepreneur i gave you the aha moment about well cannabis is something that my mother said it's okay so the aha moment of being an entrepreneur was and where i go back to i don't know if anyone's necessarily born as an entrepreneur they find it out at some point through some situation usually that a, they hate working for someone or they got fired. They're just going to go do it themselves and show the world. Or, or again, they want to create something and their creative ability is just so strong. They decide to, you know, force themselves to be an entrepreneur to get their, their concept to market. Mine was when I was, um, 
uh, eight years old, I had chores and I got paid every week to do my chores. And I kept a list of chores that I did. And the more I did, the more my my parents gave me as my allowance. So I was big in being a smaller entrepreneur, making my allowance, doing my chores at eight years old. And one day um, my mother was, I forget what it was. There was some fight we got or something I did wrong. Or, and the punishment she decided to give me was not, well, you're grounded in your room. The punishment was, I'm taking away your allowance money this week and you're not getting it. And I freaking freaked out. I ran downstairs under, um, we had this deck in the backyard with just a couple slits. I could see the sun coming through. And I sat there in the lotus position, meditative position, eight years old, bawling, crying because someone just took away money that I legitimately earned and worked hard for. And that is not right. Like that, that actually is so wrong. I could take being punished for what I did. I'll be grounded. You can't take away something I under, under agreement earned and have a right to. And I remember looking up tears bawling down my face, seeing the sun shining through the slits in the porch above me. And I this moment came over me and I said, I will never freaking work for anybody in my entire life because nobody will ever, ever do this to me again. I will own my own company someday. Wow. And this is when I was eight. I was that eight was years a moment old. right there. And you could see that in your head right now. You're, you could literally see the sun coming through the slats and feeling like, this is unjust. When I have my life review, when I pass on and they have those couple minutes on the other side of the veil to remember the th most impactful things, this is definitely one of the early ones where I will never work. For, and I'm really bad at working for people. I'm like allergic. Like Working for someone above me is something that just since that day, I've never been good at doing it. I've only really done it a couple times. It was really more just to learn the, the craft or the trade. Mm -hmm. But so right after that, I went and I got a paper route at eight years old, got a BMX bike, got a paper route and started making my own money outside of the allowance. I was like, screw that. And I became a paper boy. <laughs> Did you ever thank your mom for that moment later on? Oh, life? yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I of course, years later. <laughs> yeah, I bet years later. That's years fantastic. Later. Okay, yeah. so so you had your paper route. And obviously, any other early entrepreneurial ventures? Because you weren't going to yeah. go get a job. You weren't going to work a, that was That was a start. Up at okay. 6 in the morning, delivering papers. That's pure entrepreneurism. <laughs> so before college, was there anything else that came along with that? What were some of your early, you know, work that you were getting into you know really my so that entrepreneurial spirit drove right through to freshman year in college and um freshman year in college is where i had the real ability through synchronicity to find my way into becoming an entrepreneur as an actual real life situation or a career um i ended up getting a you know 18 years old job as a bar back at the local bar in college i, I couldn't go beyond the bar because i wasn't 21 but i got to work in a bar and i got to see the different nights that did well, the different nights that didn't do well. And I joined um, my fraternity and became the social chairman by the end of freshman year of my fraternity. So I started throwing parties at our fraternity house and I started charging cover to all the other Greek sororities and fraternities that would come. I'd charge like five bucks to cover your free drinks all night. And so my, my fraternity house started making more money than ever before with me as the social chairman because I got really good at promoting parties to other Greeks outside of just our school at Northeastern University, but other schools like Boston University and the whole host of schools in Boston where I went was this rich in college party life. So I actually, through understanding how the bars work, because I worked as a bar back, seeing the slow nights, the owner always wanted the slow nights to be busier. Through synchronicity sophomore year, I ended up um, finding my way into getting my first job in a nightclub. And then asked, uh, you know, after a few months of working in the nightclub, asked the owner, well, can I take over some of the slow nights, like Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and book Greek parties, and I'll charge a cover. I'll keep the cover, you keep the bar. And this had not really been done before in Boston. And this is 1989, 90. I'm, I'm turning 50 this year. This kind of thing had not been done before in Boston. Well, fast forward over the next five years in Boston, um, I created what would be considered at the time, certainly the largest nightclub promoting company in the city. So I had five nights going every single week across multiple clubs, venues, bars, and concert halls. And I had about 40, what we call club promoters, but junior promoters working for me, you know, guys and girls at different stories and fraternities that were redeeming their little cards to get in at free admission or discounted admission. And I would pay them, you know, kind of like a royalty or a big for that. Yeah. I would keep the cover of the door and we were making hundreds of thousands of dollars by my third year doing this, my partners and I. So you're already so, in college and you're making a, you're making real money. I made 200 grand junior year cash. 
Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. But it, and I was also having tons of fun. But the truth is, I couldn't go to school. I was out every night till three, four in the morning, you know, counting the money, paying everybody out, out five nights a week. It almost became, you know, after a couple of years of making that kind of money as a young, tw- almost 20 something year old and then young 20s, it kind of became like, wait a minute, this is what I can do for a living. Why do I need to, Why I can't do I need to go to college? my classes. This, this, this other thing that's not making money is in my way right now. I've already figured out yeah. how to do entrepreneurship. I ended up taking that as a full-time path to move to Manhattan and do it for real. Okay, yeah, because I noticed you went to Northeastern. There was a bit of a gap after you graduated and before you started, you know, working for uh, Country Life Vitamins. That Were you doing that as a promoter for a number yeah, of years? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, luckily I had a, a grandfather that was a real good business guy, and he said, look, if you're not going to follow the career you started at Northeastern, which was early childhood education, oh, and you're geez. not going to – my, my thought was I was going to open up daycare centers freshman year, make a business out of it, because I, I love you know, kids. I have two little sisters and love you know, working and helping kids. So that was a true passion. But he's like, if you're going to make a career out of this, if you move – because I wanted to move to Manhattan and open up you know, my business there, and I had partners there, and I already had a couple nights going there. Bottom line, he's like, at least go to Wall Street, get your stockbroker license. So in the day, you can learn to trade stocks and learn how finance and business works. That'll kind of be your mini MBA. So for the first couple of years, or not even, the first two years, barely in New York City, I got my stockbroker license at 22 and worked in my friend's um, broker-dealer. And then by the third year, so kind of like 24, I guess, um, I actually opened up my own broker-dealer on four Wall Street with three fraternity brothers of mine. Oh, wow. So I had a broker-dealer going with 20 um, guys, some women in the room, young 20s, all dialing for dollars. Is this like boiler room? Like there's a room yeah, I mean, we we I wouldn't say, look, we didn't even know that term at the time. Yeah. We were selling stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. I wouldn't say we were as crazy as those people out in Long Island at Stratton Oakmont. Yeah. We, we, were, we were learning how to, and if you can learn how to sell and dial 400 calls a day over the phone, you Oof. could sell anything. Because at the end of the day, all you're doing is selling yourself, mm-hmm. which was, as a nightclub promoter, that's all I was doing you was selling do, myself. You've been doing that all day long. So, so all yeah, long so, too. So that was my first four or five years or five years straight in New York City was stockbroker by day, nightclub promoter by night, and having a shit ton of fun. Yeah. But also by the kind of year five, getting pretty burnt out and knowing that that's not going to be an environment I can have a family in and, and have you know uh, children in. It just wasn't conducive to any of that. And I ultimate goal for me was always to be a father and to be a husband and to start a family you, at some point. You got to get that out of your system, though. And uh, it sounds like you made a ton of money and had a lot of fun doing it and learned a lot about yourself. It, yeah, the stories I could tell you would take many more podcasts. As well. <laughs> and we'll have to put the explicit flag on the podcast too i'm sure uh that's awesome though like so during that time you've made these businesses you're making a ton of money on this uh, you know with what you're doing there where are you like investing that like what is going on in your brain because that seems like a very different lifestyle than the natural focused i mean you're 100 you're out promoting alcohol you're out promoting drinking you're yep. out promoting staying way yep. out late and blowing money yep. and having a great time seems yep. very different from some of the values that were instilled from you from from your parents the exact opposite. Money and alcohol and stockbrokering have nothing to do with the path that I'm on now the past yeah. 24 years or 25 years. So yeah, so I'm a big believer, uh, as maybe some of the listeners are in synchronicity, you know, where you kind of align yourself, get in the flow, do your thing, you know, live life truthfully and follow your kind of heart. I believe that the universe sets up synchronicities in your path to kind of put you and nudge you on the best optimal timeline for your reality that you want to be on. And I've always used synchronicity throughout my entire life. It goes back to obviously my early childhood learning about some spiritual teachings where synchronicity is the way the kind of universe works on your behalf to give you the best possible outcomes. So I decided kind of with, I was in a serious relationship with a girl that this isn't going to be how I can get married someday and raise a family because I won't be able to be out every night until five in the morning. I wish I could do something a little bit different, but still make great money and still be an entrepreneur. And within a couple months, one of my best friends at the time from college, his family owned a very large vitamin company in Long Island. And I always was taking vitamins from his company in college. So very familiar. I also being kind of a hippie kid in a organic kind of hippie house was doing lots of herbal teas and herbal ingredients. My mother was big into herbs. So his company was doing that too. So basically he said, Hey, listen, we're, we're growing to the next level. We'll someday be a hundred million dollar company. I'd love you to come work for us. If you're not thrilled with your career, do you want to do it? And I said, you know what? Screw it. I got an opportunity to work with a trusted friend. So it's not like I'm really working 
for somebody. He's my best friend, but I could actually now be in a real business model. I could kind of follow my path, which is really natural foods industry. Cause I grew up going to whole foods in Boston, which was bread and circus at the time. And they were selling to those kind of stores. So it's like, well, everything you're doing, I love. And it will put me on a whole different, better path physically and for everything, my mental health. Eat mentally and all those other good things. Made that move. And literally within the first year of becoming kind of the New York, he's like, listen, for one year, go out in New York City, just be humble, be the sales rep so you can learn the industry. You'll be on a fast track to be an executive the second year, but just, just go make sure you like it. So I literally took a step back from wearing a suit and tie all day to being a guy probably wearing a Rolex and looking like I was somebody bigger than I was to, to all of a sudden my first day on the job, you know, 1996, walked out of New York City with shorts and a t-shirt and a polo shirt, took my watch off and was humble pie and had a feather duster. And I had my list of a hundred accounts that they were selling vitamins to in New York City. And I went store by store and introduced myself as the new sales rep. Can I dust off my bottles on the shelf and help build the business here? Wow. And I was humble as you can imagine. You. And I also, I also know how to sell myself, not necessarily the vitamins. And within a year, broke every single record that was ever set for the company in the city, grew the business four times into a multi-million dollar business for the company in the New York metro market. And then eventually, um, they bought this little tea company called Long Life Tea uh, from a Chinese herbal medicinal doctor in San Francisco. They moved it back to, to, to New Jersey. And they said, Eric, your passion's like tea and stuff. You crushed it in the vitamins. You want to take over the company and be the first president. We just bought it. We need someone to run it. And I was like 29 years old. I was like... I could be my own president of my own little tea company and still in the parent portfolio and get to do things like create things like, yeah. And I did that was how I got into beverage is okay. I got to this little tea company with 40 skews of packed herbal tea and sachets. And the first summer came and my, you know, my owners, you know, my friend and his family said, Hey, listen, we're probably going to recommend shutting the plant down for the summer because nobody buys hot tea over the summer. We'll shut it down, let all the workers go home and we'll rehire new people in, 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 the, in the fall when, when cold, when hot tea season picks up. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying we're going to let 12 people go that make their living here that are all hardworking because it's the season change. That's not, that's not, A, that's not fair. B, they're all going to be out of work. See, that's not a sustainable business model even for me. I said, what if I come up with a new idea and take our most popular six blends, put them in an iced tea and come out with a beverage brand so we don't have to do that. And they were like, if you could figure that out, go do it, kid. So I did. And I um, found a little small co-packer, which was Honest Tea's first investment as a co-packer back in 1998, way out in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and brewed my first six bottles of tea called Long Life Tea and literally cut my teeth as a beverage entrepreneur to save my plant from going out of business for the summer. You saw you saw a lack of opportunity there. There was people that are going to get laid off. There was like you obviously with your with your your upbringing, your you know, your parents were drinking iced tea in the summer and you're like, yeah. this is a missed opportunity Herbal. right Herbal. here. Did you love having that balance of I'm the entrepreneur, you know, like I'm the president, I could, I have directions, but also having the backing of like, you know, here is a team of other people that have a great business sense and that they know what they're doing, but they're, they're, they're empowering me. Yeah. I never forget. I mean, I wouldn't, I had to actually go into the family formally on a Friday, you know, they had these Friday meetings and I had to actually, we didn't even have like computers back then. Like I actually wrote all my pages out on the, on the whiteboard with the pages. And so I brought them through my PowerPoint, but it was really all written out. And I drew pictures of the bottle plant and the tea bottles and my design. But bottom line, I, I, I think my passion probably sold them more than any business yeah. thesis that I could I didn't really know how ready the drinks are going to perform at all. We had Snapple and Lipton intently at the time, yep. but I was watching soda start to go down. So I did have a thesis in my mind that, okay, people are drinking more healthy things. Why not herbal tea? Because mm -hmm. Lipton intently and Snapple are either fruit flavors or black teas. And I sold them on that idea. And they were like, kid, go figure it out and do it. And that started my journey in organic herbal tea as an entrepreneur. Because they gave, they were my first backers, so to speak. And yep. they gave me the ability to go do it. That's so, so amazing. That's like to have that empowerment that's right there. Did you have any idea how insanely difficult getting into the beverage industry was going to be? Uh, no, not necessarily. And if I probably knew everything I knew now, I may not have even started Steez, which is really my first brand I created a couple years after that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's good that ignorance was bliss because I didn't know enough to know how hard it is to make money and how hard it is to be profitable for the first five years as a beverage entrepreneur. I didn't know any of that stuff. We Our bag tea was profitable. So, But the good thing I had was, again, the ability because my bag teas were in Whole Foods. Mm -hmm. I already had relationships with distributors, relationships with, with Whole Foods. So I had a little bit of a leg up versus most 
most entrepreneurs that start day one, I'm going to be a beverage entrepreneur. How do I do it? I don't know anybody. How do I get shelving space? How do I get distribution? How do I get all I those things? I was very lucky that I already had a brand on the market. It gave me instant credit and the ability to, to launch the bottle teas. And by the way, that bottle tea business only lasted three years. We ended up, um, it was my first time getting to hire an investment banker. We actually sold the business to Kiko Man. Oh, wow. um, the big soy sauce company, yeah, nobody yeah. knows in North, in North America, they have like 17 companies they own. But so we ended up, I ended up getting to work with an investment banker at 31 and go through a whole process of dog and pony show selling the business. And so that's kind of what got me to the next. That's a huge educational knowledge that, you know, a lot of business owners don't get to, to get to go through. And they, and the family was good about letting I got you very lucky be again. involved in, be heavily involved. In I, that I, as well. Yeah. I ran the process. Yeah. And, that, that's, and awesome. that's how I built some of my early relationships with VCs and private equity in the beverage space back in the late 90s, early 2000s because of that experience. So very, I was very blessed. And again, the synchronicity was incredible. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, you, and you know, not everyone takes advantage of those opportunities that you had right at your hand. You know, from a very pedestrian point of view, like every time I'm like watching like Shark Tank or something, and any time that they mention, oh, I want to have a beverage, like everybody cringes like literally visualizing money going up in flames. What yep. are some of the biggest challenges in creating a beverage company? Look, the reason why people that are smart that are on the investment side are cringing is because everybody knows the data or the numbers or the reality of success. And the reality is extremely small. I mean, out of any beverage brand that launches, less than 1% will ever get to 25 million in revenue and probably a fraction that will ever sell their company or exit it. So usually the numbers that we know in the space, and I've been a beverage entrepreneur for 22 years now and have built and sold three brands, 80% um, of most entrepreneurs fail by the end of the first year. Business is done by the end of year one. Out of the ones that are left, 70% of those generally are gone by the end of year two. And it's always the same mistakes. Nobody realizes how much money it takes to build the beverage brands so nobody raises enough. So they're under by the end of year. By the end of year one, you ran out of money and, you, and most beverage entrepreneurs are not professional investment bankers or fundraisers. So they find themselves, you know, 18, 19 months in, oh my God, I got to now go raise money half the time, not build my brand. So money and the fact that money comes in the top and goes out the bottom so quickly, and there's not usually enough left to keep funneling uh, the company's um, growth, uh, you're always in fundraise mode. So it's just a very dangerous place to be. The other problem with beverages versus say like in Whole Foods, you can look at what department's most best margins, dietary supplements or beauty products are usually 60 to 75% margin. Beverage is always 20 to 30% margin yeah. year one. So your even chance of making any money is so hard to even show an investor there's a path to profitability is you, you've got to be one of those brands that has something so unique you could charge a premium or your cost of goods are so low you can make margin or you've got a smart model you figure out how to do your business differently. And so basically everyone fails for the same reasons. It's it's sad and, and, um, and I've, you know, been part of that too. I've, yeah. I've made every single mistake anyone else has made, you can imagine, but also I've had a, a few good successes and enough years under my belt that I've kind of got a blueprint now. And we use that blueprint with Mood 33 and how we created the business to set up a more successful, what we would always call now paths to profitability as a mantra when we're mm -hmm. creating a business plan and beverage always, not just an endless pit that money has to be raised every single year to stay alive. The, yeah. That's the old model. It's not the way you do it now. Well, I want to get I would, like I wanted to establish that before getting into the rest of your stuff, because you have a number of other beverage companies along the way that you're coming through and also like some larger umbrella companies that are managing smaller brands here. So um, I don't want to send you away the rest of that story. I know Steve's was your next one on here. So let's continue with that that kind of timeline. Yeah. So, um, you know, having to be forced with the concept that, wow, I'm not going to be running long life tea anymore as a young president because it's going, um, I need to come up with my next idea. And again, synchronicity, um, I started watching the data on soft drinks and this is going back called 2000 watching. This is back when we had the first computers giving us this kind of data in my office. And I was watching just the trends go down, Coke, Pepsi, Cadbury, Cot all starting to go down and iced teas and healthier juices starting to go up. Now those iced teas probably weren't that healthy at the time, but, and also watching a few brands start to come to market. They're doing functional things um, like fuse way back in the day, like fuse people don't even remember that was Lance Collins first brand way before core, way before body armor. This is way back. So I just, this, uh, this kind of concept formed in my mind, why can't I take this idea of tea to the next level, but bring some of my kind of personal passion of changing the planet for the better into the business thesis. And what came out of that was the Steez brand, which my partner, Stephen Kessler and I founded in late 2002, right? We, we timed it right when the organic 
um, industry was allowed by the USDA to use the logo, the USDA organic logo. Mm -hmm. That logo was first allowed on food and beverage projects in November of 2002. I had known about that all year because I was already in, in, in the industry and our tea brand was organic, not organic certified because there was no such thing as a real certification. Um, so knowing that my thesis was, okay, let's launch the very first USDA organic certified tea company. But seeing that soda was going down and teas are going up, I said, let's not just be like honest tea because they launched two years prior to us. Let's not be another honest tea. Let's do something a little different. And the idea we had was let's put bubbles and tea together and make a carbonated soft drink or a green tea soda or sparkling green tea concept. And our first skews were all basically you know, knockoffs of the most popular soda flavors, a grape, an orange, a ginger ale, a root beer, a cola. So we ba we basically took popular soda flavors in an old-fashioned soda bottle, but a cup of green tea, organic fair trade green tea, and came up with this revolutionary concept at the time, the world's first sparkling organic green tea soda. And everyone we showed it to, Wegmans and Whole Foods, who were friends with us, um, they were like, Wow, this is pretty interesting. You know, I'm surprised nobody's walked in yet from Coke or Pepsi showing us this. We'll give you some shelf space, guys. And, you know, the first year we hit a million in revenue. This is 2003. Mm -hmm. um, and we did it on our own. And, uh, but we had no money to market it off shelf. So the second year we did another million in revenue. We didn't grow the business year to year. We just st stuck at a million because we didn't have, we didn't actually go into it raising any money. We actually didn't have a business plan. So, first fatal flaw. We had no business plan. We had, you know, 50 grand each and, you know, and we put everything we could into it the first two That's years. That's slim pickings right there. That's so, real so slim pickings. no money to do. Yeah. Every demo for two years was done by my partner and I. Every demo, and we did hundreds. So we actually were out there in the field really building our brand. Did you have a feather duster to clean off the bottles? <laughs> oh, yeah, always, because our bottles were collecting dust. Yeah. We stuck them in, in Stop and Shop up in Boston. They didn't sell it all. We kept going up there dusting them off, you know, shaking the bottles. But by year three, the world kind of got a little hipper to – organic and a little hipper to tea and our concept. And we met our first angel investor and we did our first business plan. And I got my first mentor, a guy named Brad Barnhorn, who at the time had sold Fantasia Juice. And he's a serial entrepreneur now and he's been involved in dozens and dozens of successful startups. And he became our first consultant we worked with in 2004 to help us create our first business plan. And by the time we were done with that, I was like, holy shit, I can't believe we didn't do a business plan two and a half years ago. We would have saved ourselves so many mistakes if we just had done this right instead of yeah. figuring all the mistakes out. But I guess making all those mistakes really toughen us up to be better entrepreneurs it's, anyway. So I, I guess that's your MBA then right there, right? 100%. 100%. We joke about it all the time. You know, we and I get those mistakes were sometimes cost to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess uh, I guess it's cheaper to go to school. But like the real life experience just is nothing else. Cool. So you got the Steez company. It's going great. It's starting to get some traction. You actually have a business plan. Yeah. Yeah. What does that, that lead into from there? So things are starting to catch on. There's some trends that are coming around for organics being accepted. People want more natural ingredients in what they're consuming. Yeah, got our so that business plan got us our first two million dollars from a family office in New York City. The, the 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 truth is, the guy just really wanted to own an organic brand, and I think be able to brag to his fellows friends in the Hamptons that he over drinks that he has an organic investment. Either way, it was it was weird. It took uh, three days after we met him to get the money, and it was for you. Again, the universe kind of blessed us there, but that got us to then go to 1.6 million, 3.5 million, 6 million, 10 million. And at the 10 million mark, we took in an investment. This is 2008 uh, from Nestle, Nestle over in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. um, they did an $11 million investment in us at the time, but uh, that was in May of 2008. In oh. June of 2008, the whole world blew up. Yep. So we actually had to go with a major financial meltdown all around the world when the economies crashed everywhere and the real estate business imploded and Whole Foods went from opening 50 new stores that next year to zero. And we had a couple of tough down years or flat years as a company right after taking a massive investment and deploying a bunch of bets. So I had to go through my, and so did my partner, the hardest two years of our lives, having to show up at every board meeting, missing numbers, and then having to go back twice to our lead investor to ask for money in down rounds. So I got Ooh. punished. Um, we lost, we got diluted. Yeah. Um, it was just a really tough, and not only us, I mean, we know brands that went out of business those two years, but yeah. um, luckily, I mean, look, I guess in some sense, luckily it was Nestle because they were going to stick by us as investors. They had the money um, and it took two years, but in the end of that two years, 
it became clear that we had to find a profitable way to do business. And two co-founders making 165000 each um, was not sustainable. So I left the business and started um, my own consulting shop called MetaBrand at the time. And my partner, Steven, stayed on as the founder that stayed on. Um, and they eventually grew the business to $20 million And we sold the business four years ago in 2016 successfully through a strategic exit to a strategic acquire. So that whole ride ended up being you know, a successful outcome. That's your second exit then? Yeah, it ended up in Steven stayed through that. And then he's now with me now. He came back to join me afterwards. But I mean, look, Thank God that happened. I'm I'm yeah. so appreciative of that because I wouldn't be here now, eight, nine, ten years later, having built you know as many brands as I have. I was basically forced into okay, I'm going to be an entrepreneur again. Yeah. Um, I was you know eight years the founder of Steez. Now I'm going to go be the founder of you know what I called Meta Brand at the time, which is a small R and D shop I launched in Edison, New Jersey, inside of my friend's ninety thousand square foot vitamin plant. I launched a small little R and D center to make organic beverage formulas for entrepreneurs that wanted that kind of expertise and help because there really wasn't any flavor houses focusing so much on organic at the time. And that was my passion in herbs and herbal blends. So, you know, very early on, we started working with brands that I became very close with like Rebel, Rebel Superfoods, Tio Gaspacho, Runa Tea. We did all the original formulas for Runa Tea back in 2012. And then that became a business I leaned in as an investor um, and raised the entire series C round of $6 million in 2014, then joined the board. But I was always the two founders mentors almost since on like month five so that was the kind of my second business was runa as a brand although i wasn't one of the two co-founders i was probably the closest person as a mentor advisor and investor because then we had the largest stake in the company through the investment i put in on behalf of the group that i raised the funds from so that business you know um, was my second kind of i would say passion play where i leaned in and helped build the company eventually that business you know which mission aligned you know yeah. you know helping farmers in ecuador instead of cutting down trees for the logging industry actually sell tea that they could grow native on their property and make a profit that was a super mission driven model that i was passionate about was that a b corporation yeah so certified b corp from the beginning yeah and by the way steez was a b corp and we were triple bottom line and we were righteous and passionate and carbon neutral and Bruno was many of those things also, which is why I really, you know, became like a big brother to the two founders and and they adopted all the best practices as a business as possible. But really it was the mission of saving farmers' lives and giving them a better path to making a living in Ecuador that that got all of us so jazzed, including every investor. And they had about three hundred investors. So that was my second, I guess, play. I heard the um, the How I Built This the other day with uh, Copaxi, and it was a B Corp, and it, they found it very hard to raise funds for that. How was your experience with raising funds for a B Corp? Super easy, because we know the B Corp network, and I was involved in B Corp since they started here in Philadelphia and friends with you know a lot of the, you know, the, the mentors and, and uh, investors. So there's actually a tremendous amount of funds, amount of funds around the world that do mission-based investing or B Corp type investing. That's the, you know, that that is their, their funds thesis is, helping save situations that are mission aligned through investment. Even if that profit is number of years out, if at all. Yeah. Some of the, many of the LPs in those funds are not driven by a seven year return at all. The, the return is how many lives, how many suffering, how much the ecology or environment was saved. That's how they measure their investment. They actually may not even get back an investment if the business it doesn't need to sell. So that's not the goal of those kind of funds. And that was really great for me to get involved with investors that have more of a mission mind focus on the return of their capital and get into that network as well in 2014. Did you feel a lot more back to your roots, a lot more personally satisfied by, by some of those things? Oh, over the past 10 years, almost everything that I've gotten involved in that I have an equity stake in is some representation of some childhood situation, mm -hmm. whether it's plant medicine now with Mood 33 and yep. cannabis and CBD. I mean, I, I was doing that back when I was 13 and 83. So, I mean, yes, all, I don't get involved in anything that I don't have that kind of passion or belief in at all that the, somehow the business is not going to make the world a bit better from whatever outcome that business is supposed to have. That's my thesis. You know, obviously you've done very well with that and just professionally, but also, you know, personally as well. Like it just helps you as a person. Um, yeah. Your wife, Marcy, is, is a force as well. When did she come into the picture? She's a freaking rock star. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't say that because I'm her husband. You could go to marcyzaroff.com and check her out. But my wife in the 90s uh, founded the Institute for Integrative Nutrition in New York City, which is now the largest kind of holistic certification um, school in the world. They've certified over 100,000 coaches. And uh, then she went on in 95 to 
to, to, to basically create and found the term eco-fashion. And so she spent the last, you know, God, almost 25, 30 years building sustainable, organic uh, fashion brands, textile brands, home goods brands. And today she's basically got, you know, her parent company is called Eco Fashion Corp. But she um, is on QVC with a collection of uh, home goods, you know, bedding sheets, linens, textiles, uh, robes, all organic, all fair trade certified or got certified. She's got a collection called Yes And, which is on, on the internet right now. You can go to yesand.com, which is sustainable um, uh, fashion, you know, clothes, t shirts, mm-hmm. you know. Um, hoodies, you know, sweats, um, all organic, all certified, all, all fair trade. Um, and she's done a lot of work in India, which we both share that com- kind of common love of India as a country and the people. Again, I lived in an ashram. You know, she was a, a, a basic turned Buddhist at 16 and was also meditating. So her and my spiritual um, life is very interwoven from a spiritual sense. We have the same beliefs and the same passion. We've been married for 10 years. We're second marriages. And we um, we do all of our businesses are pretty much shared together. And we created Beyond Brands five years ago as our first kind of agency model or call it kind of mini family office mm-hmm. in New York City to bring the best of her world of you know sustainable fair trade textiles and fashion and beauty meeting my world, which was organic food and beverage and plant medicine together. And in 2000, early, you know, January, 2016, we created Beyond Brands, um, which anyone can go to beyondbrands.org and see what we do. But we focus on the five areas of business that we love most as a couple. And we've created an agency with 22 partners that kind of all follow that passion and ethos of, you know, creating better businesses. And so at the agency today, um, you know, one half of what we do is kind of a mini Bain and McKenzie model where we have 22 partners that will do consulting work from anything from R&D oversight to brand architecture to packaging design, all the way through to business plan, uh, sales and distribution strategy. And we have a D2C group that we merged with and acquired in the fall. So now we do full-scale e-com, Amazon D2C services in-house. It's really an A to Z one-stop shop for an entrepreneur that fits with kind of our model of doing good in the world. Um, it seemed to me when I was looking at it, it was like an incubator. You know, if you had to sum it yeah. up rather, rather consensually into one word, like this is an incubator. If you have a great idea that fits our values, you're going to be able to help them, you know, work through any kind of issues and get and go to market. Yeah, exactly. So one half of the business is an incubator. The yep. other half of our model is an accelerator mm-hmm. where we actually will go in with equity plays. Maybe we have a small equity stake if we're granted or we'll create a company from scratch um, or co-found a company from scratch like we did in 2016 with Good Catch, which is the first plant-based vegan seafood brand on the market. Kind of a cousin company to Beyond Meat. That was our first in-house brand we created ourselves with a private equity group that we partnered with. And since then, Mood 33 was the next brand we created the next year, 2017. Um, addressing obviously the white space and cannabis and CBD beverages. Um, so we constantly you know, have a mandate each year to create one of our own house brands because we have a robust operating team and you know a group of partners that can that this is all they've done their whole careers, launched brands. We do pride ourselves in the ability to create our own stuff once in a while too. Mm-hmm. But that other half, the accelerator model, is a model that an entrepreneur can work with us and when they launch their first year in the market, we can actually put members of our team in as the fractional executive team under the founder at a fraction of the cost of the founder having to go higher. So that model was built out of the experience I had on the two flat years with Nestle getting punished on down rounds and realizing, oh my God, the answer to being a beverage entrepreneur is not just continuing to go back to your lead investor and ask for more money. The answer is to come up with a, a path to profitability as a model where you can actually sustain yourself. And so that that turning point for me in 2010, because I had to go through it painfully, is what we use now as a thesis in every brand we work with. It's the thesis of our agency's accelerator model is outs- you outsource your doctor, your lawyer, your accountant. Why can't you outsource your head of sales, your head of marketing, you know, your head of operations for the first yeah. couple of years, your CFO? So that part of our business model, which has probably a portfolio of 15 brands in it, we are doing fractional work on six-month or 12-month retainers acting as the startup management team for founders so they can come to market safer, smarter, faster mm-hmm. and then having to figure out a lot of it on their own, raising more capital and making the same mistakes we all made. So that's the model that we actually can lean in yeah. and be that team. And so for Mood 33... Yeah, how did that come about? We the whole thing we did the acceler we did the incubating in house you know back in 2017 with kind of creating the concept and creating the formulas and then basically accelerated it through our own company with our entire team including my co-founder of Steez now is my co-founder and head of sales for Mood 33 we basically have our entire team of managers of seven of us that are you know appropriate for sales marketing finance yep. ops 
managing Mu33. So we keep our cash burn super low compared to maybe our competitors. Um, and we also have a team of super seasoned managers that would never be probably together on a year one startup beverage play. You wouldn't get this kind of talent. So how did that, how did that come about? What was that initial phone call? Cause it's like, this is THC. Like you guys are in California. The aha moment came about in 2014, sitting mm-hmm. at my, my, in my desk at Metabrand in Edison, New Jersey. And someone from Colorado, a supplier sent me a bottle, which was probably illegal of CBD oil. And I dropped the CBD oil in water, drank it. And 10 minutes later, I'm staring out the window, trying to talk to the birds on the, on the leaves just like zoned out, but focused, but zoned out and feeling like, well, my shoulders went, ah. Uh-huh. And, I, and after a few minutes, I said, wait a minute. This is the opposite of caffeine. This is the opposite of Red Bull. This is the anti-energy drink. Someone's got to create brands around this ingredient, this CBD ingredient. Of course, it was illegal at the time. Did the 2014 Farm Bill have an issue with that? Or I mean, yeah, that's yeah. what started. That's what started yeah. the kind of kickstarted the entrepreneurial spirit. And um, we went to Arcview in 2000, I think late 2004 or 15, we went to Arcview's event in Brooklyn, got up on stage. And of course, I'm thinking I've already raised probably $20 million by that point as an entrepreneur. I'm going to have an easy time getting up there, telling my story with my CBD beverages with my partner and get off stage. And everyone's going to want to invest in us. Well, it was the biggest letdown. Nobody that we spoke to wanted to actually invest because everyone once they ran it through their lawyers or their money managers said, hey, hey, hey this is still a, a DEA class one scheduled drug. We can't risk it. And so for the next year and a half, we kind of sat there, 2015, 16, you know, early 17, like, what are we going to do? We can't come to markets. No one's going to fund this because it's still technically illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the the seed was was born there. And um, and the seed from Mood 33 was born there that we wanted to be the first brand to bring this ingredient or one of the first brands to bring it to market. But what we ended up doing was, because we couldn't wait any longer until, you know, FDA weighed in on CBD, we said, screw it. Let's just, um, let's just do what we can do. So what we can do is we can go to California base ourselves in Santa Monica and just be a THC beverage company, get licensed and sell dispensaries. If we could do that, let's just go do that until someday CBD is allowed. So never mind the quasi-legal CBD. Let's just dive in over in California and just throw some THC into all this stuff, which is, you know, still federally illegal, but obviously legal in, 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 yeah, uh, in yeah. California. So, you know, and over the years, I made good friends with like Kenny Morrison, who's the founder of Cannabis Quencher, Venice Cookie Company. And he became a good friend of mine and shared with me his journey since 2000 denied of being a beverage pioneer in the THC space. So I was very lucky, you know, again, you know, maybe because my reputation you know, or, or work with people, a lot of people wanted to help me, give me advice. So we came to market, you know, mid 2018, summer 2018, um, and built the business in about a hundred dispensaries. Um, but I will tell you, we learned so many hard lessons that nobody could have prepared us for. There are the things that we thought in the beverage world you could easily do in the dispensary world that you can't. So like demoing is a key critical component of launching any new beverage brand. You can't stand in a dispensary and pour THC drinks out. It's illegal. So standing there giving pamphlets out or leaflets out became a challenge yep. and very hard to convert people that walk into the dispensary to go to buy our little $8 bottle. Also, what we learned was, is, you know, look, when you, when you sell your beverage brand in Whole Foods or, you know, places like that, those, those people that work at Whole Foods, they become your best salesmen. They, they wear your t-shirts, your baseball caps. They drink you at their lunch. Well, you go to a dispensary, <clears throat> the bud tender is supposed to be that, like your gatekeeper, yep. but trying to convince a bud tender who basically consumes about 300 milligrams a day of THC, mostly not in a drink, but in in flour or other forms, to go recommend something they don't do themselves to somebody walking in saying, I've got pain, I can't sleep, I've got arthritis, what do I take? They, they, they send them right to what they should take, which is probably not a beverage, yeah. enjoyable, sociable, gulpable experience. So we learned really hard over one year <clears throat> to the tune of almost a million dollars we deployed to, to build the business that it is going to be really hard to build a multi-million dollar THC beverage brand. And thank God, right around that time we had that aha moment, the farm bill passed December of 2018. That's coming off our first six months aha moments. So you're getting, you're getting beat up. A seasoned executive with many, beverage executive with many exits is learning all new lessons. I'm just space. watching us burn 50,000, 60,000 a month with no pathway to actually build a multi-million dollar business. And then of course you get friendly with the other founders and you find out the biggest brand in California is doing 3 million a year 
Well, three million a year, that would be like one account in the normal beverage world. That would be what you do in Whole Foods, not the entire state of California. You know, so I'm sitting there saying, Holy so your best shit. case scenario is already capped. Yes. And I had to be super honest about it. And the super honest thing about it, luckily, I've got enough experience dealing with investors. Investors want honesty from a CEO. They want transparency. They want to know shit's going down when it's going down, not two quarters later. So I basically called, you know, so again, farm bill gets passed 2018, December. We're feeling like, oh my God, this is the beginning of, and a couple months from now, the FDA will weigh in because of course the farm bill's passed and tell everybody CBD's fine. So that was the bet, that was the bet. <clears throat> but at least we knew we could get into the business. And we knew there was at least probably about 20 states that our FDA attorneys identified that were probably going to be super friendly in 2019 to CBD beverages on a shelf, meaning they're not going to send inspectors in and pull it off shelf and arrest you. So then of course there were states that would do that, that our FDA attorneys warned us about. So I basically, you know, uh, with my partner spoke to every investor over the course of a month or two and said, there's 20 investors that put in 2 million bucks. Hey, do you approve this pivot as a company going from THC? We want to put all of our resources now in 2019 and 20 into being a number one national gold standard brand in the CBD beverage space. We can get in as one of the first brands. There's only a few of them out there, like Recess and Vibes. Does everyone agree with that pivot? And that pivot means we're going to wind down THC, you know, end of December 2019, 2020, and we are going to own CBD beverages. Everyone, everyone agreed to it, thank God. Um, and now it's been a blessing and a, a real blessing. So, yeah, so we we then went into formulation mode. And honestly, we took a lot of our years of passion around herbs mm-hmm. and, and botanicals um, to cre- and, and understanding of functional beverages and took what was a THC sparkling, enjoyable, sociable drink concept in dispensaries to now a robust six skew line of super high functional herbal beverages using hemp. CBD as the hero ingredient in the formula surrounded by a cast of Ayurvedic and Chinese herbal medicinal herbs so that each skew has a function that delivers on the name of the skew. So calm is a lavender chamomile blend, kind of like a, you know, almost like a sleepy time tea from celestial seasonings. We've got energy, which is a a three uh, caffeine plant-based blend out of 133 milligrams of caffeine with the CBD that really gives you kind of a super focused experience. And then we have passion and joy and peace, a, a nice arrangement of skews that kind of get you through your day. But the thesis was with this is that Red Bull was just one drink. Red Bull was just energy. Now, it took many, 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 many years to create a different flavor, which, well, you know, now we see different flavors, but that was not the case for a couple of decades. We said with, with CBD, our thesis was, we don't just want to be different flavors of CBD. That's not enough. We need to find different different ways to fit into your everyday life. So you start your day with the energy around noon. Maybe you're drinking your, your passion for lunch and on your way home in the 405 where it's busy on the freeway and you're stressed out, you drink your calm, you know? So we wanted to find a way to infuse at least two or three mood states into Mm -hmm. your day that our drink will use CBD as the catalyst in these herbs to give you a different feeling each time you drink one of our SKUs. That you can have one brand and then have many lines within that and then to be able to 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 have that brand affinity for the for the customer at that point. Loyal brand evangelists yeah. is what we want. People to fall in love with the brand. You're using a lot of the the terpenes and a lot of the other chemicals that are within the plant um, to be able to accomplish that, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So we you know, definitely the herb I'd say the herbs are the second most important thing outside of the C B D source. Yep. I will also tell you. We're very proud of the fact that, um, and this goes back to our roots being brand creators and ingredient pioneers for many years. We partnered with Evo Hemp early on, and Evo Hemp, um, we watched for many years build their branded products in some of the same stores we sell it in grocery. And uh, their supply chain comes from the Lakota tribe in South Dakota. And so it's basically a fair trade, almost certified, mission based story around hemp and CBD coming from Alex Whiteplume in his reservation where just two years ago they had one acre planted for hemp. Now they've got 10 acres. <clears throat> we signed up to basically commit to a year worth of volume purchasing to be a good partner. And we're very proud of that story that it's grown to organic standards, but more importantly, it's creating a new economy and a better economy for Native American Indians living on these reservations. That goes back to my days at Steez building a fair trade supply chain. Yep. I, I just a lot of research I did on your on, on the company and the and where you guys get things from. It's all there's a lot of thought in in every step of that supply of chain that you guys are have there. I think that's fantastic. So where did Mood Thirty Three 
come from? So mood, obviously, we are going to change or, or elevate your mood states. That's mm-hmm. where the first word comes from. 33 is a Tibetan numerological number that stands for luck or good fortune. Um, again, as a kid, I kind of had an affinity to Eastern philosophy and religions and studied a little bit of Tibetan Buddhism and Tibetan numerology. And 33 is a real powerful number uh, for bringing good luck and, and good fortune. Well, it sounds like you guys are off to a great start. And with your background, you have a power team behind all that. That's quite amazing. To Thank have. you. Thank you. Um, what is the current state of the company today? And what are some of the opportunities, challenges that you see for the future for Mood 33 specifically, and then like maybe the market in a little bit of a general sense? Thank you. So, you know, we would have thought by now that the FDA would have weighed in and said CBD is fine to be in consumable products. Um, and we would have been in our typical blueprint, probably in about 40 states right now, distributed nationally by United Natural Foods and KE and every large distributor that we know and have intimate relationships with and being sold right now in Whole Foods nationwide and every other retailer that we also have relationships with. So the the I say the biggest letdown of our management team is that none of us are able to use all of our networks and relationships that we've had for 20 years to accelerate this brand in 10,000 doors its first year. That was what we originally thought was going to happen. As it turns out, we've had to go uh, and pivot to an alternative beverage distribution route. And what that means is um, we're using, uh, you know, networks in different states and different cities of independent, smaller DSD beverage distributors. Some of them are are, are Anheuser-Busch or Budhouses and others are doing specialty gourmet products. Um, But basically we've we've had to go the smaller to market route, dealing with most of our retailers being smaller independent mom and pops, whether it's health food stores or up and down the street, bodegas. Um, Probably the biggest chain run would be 14 to 15 stores, you know, smaller chains, because every one of our larger relationships, and we've spoken to every buyer you can imagine from Wegmans to Walgreens to Whole Foods, says we're creating our dossier of CBD beverages. We know who the players are. We're getting everything set up. So as soon as our back office compliance department tells us CBD beverages are allowed, we've kind of got the one, two brands in each area, sparkling, herbal, you know. So we've already been, I'd say this is the craziest thing. We've been pre-approved if you count the doors and probably across 40 states, 10,000 doors. We've been pre-approved. None of those sets can happen until everyone gets the green light, including even Dot Foods, who we've got a relationship with, is waiting for that same green light. So we've, we've almost been like dating all year because we're in the game, you know, we're using our FDA attorneys to be on lots of phone calls, by the way, to, to help educate some buyers and help their own compliance teams. Like, yes, this is legal. Here's where it says it's legal. Please let us yeah. in. But there's a lot of education, not even just a consumer level, but up the value chain as well. So that's all we're doing. We're doing we're doing a lot of education, a lot of speaking, a lot of networking. We're in, you know, 300 doors in New York City right now. We're in 100 doors in Florida. We're in 50 doors in Chicago. We just kicked off that distributor. Um, you know, we have DSD and, you know, Maine kicking off now with two of the bud houses also connecticut so i'd say there's a, a good a dozen states that we are doing something we never thought we'd have to do in build a smaller model just so we're in the game so we, our seat is at the big boys table or big girls table so when things turn on we're there because the worst thing i think is you is that what and i believe we all believe it's just a matter of you know when not if it's gonna happen is when it's gonna happen when it happens and those buyers start turning on their green lights it's going to be a floodgate of those first few brands that they got friendly with that are going to be turned on for distribution. People's businesses will go from 100000 a month to a million a month very quickly. We know that. And your challenge is having production ready to go. So, you know, whenever that day might be. And you're like, quick, grow hemp quicker. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's wild. It's the it's almost like, you know, you're going to win the lottery or you're going to be a pretty good chance of being in the, the lottery. But yeah. you just don't know when the lottery is going to be called. Someday. Uh, that's, that's a great challenge to have, though. That's a very high class problem to have for the future. So you're getting yourself uh, in great position. And I've had all the all the Mood 33s. I think they're all very delicious, best served over ice. And Gulpable is the name that we use in the Montreux for creating every formula. You got to want to gulp it. Forget yeah. that there's CBD in it. You should love the taste of these formulas. Yeah, and they, were, they were good, regardless of the, mm-hmm. having CBD in there. They were just great to enjoy and very, very, yeah. very refreshing and relaxing. Thank you. So no, thank, thank you. you for thank you for those. What are some cannabis and non-cannabis founders that inspire you? Um, cannabis and non-cannabis. Well, I'd say my buddy, Kenny Morrison, who founded Venice Cookie Company, which is arguably the largest edible portfolio in California, was the earliest pioneer, went from, you know, being a a store owner of dispensaries to find his way into a brand owner. A lot of respect I got to pay to pioneers and homage that started this industry and took great risk and got arrested Mm -hmm. a couple of times 
to get many of us to be where we are today. So big props to folks like that, especially out in California and Colorado that paved the way for many of us today. Um, and, you know, you know, I, I, I just, I was on a panel yesterday, uh, food navigator had a, about a thousand people attended, um, with, uh, Ben Whitty from recess. And I, I really got to say, you know, as one of the first brands that broke out in CBD beverages or hemp infused beverages, I really do love his angle and the way that he's really creating a lifestyle brand around this wonderful plant and really building that versus just, you know, it's just all about the ingredients it's about his brand, but the ingredients, obviously the hero. Yep. And I think, uh, you know, there's, look. All of us are in the same boat together. We're trying to educate and delight the consumer that hemp can taste good and maybe the CBD component in it will help you feel a little better. And there's a lot of great folks that are out there, you know, in this early kind of year, one year, two, pioneering the category, which we believe will be the greatest beverage category someday to rival energy in a few years. That's that's excellent. Those are those are good, those are two great people and, and definitely some great homage to pay. Um, question I don't always ask, but I think you're gonna love this one. Is there anything that you need from the universe right now? Oh yes, actually I do. So we, 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 we had, we had planned to kick off our series seed raise mm-hmm. right March 1st at Expo West trade show in Anaheim. We had about 20 meetings booked at our booth with investors and whatnot and COVID hit, uh, booth was canceled. Show is canceled. My fundraise dog and pony show that was kicking off got canceled. We kind of stayed low the past couple months until we felt that the country was uh, somewhere on its path to reopening before we started speaking to investors again. So we actually are now out there officially as of first week of May with our series seed deck, raising a $3 million round. And if anybody wants to you know, send an email and, or the universe wants to send an email, I'm Eric, E-R-I-C at mood33.com. And I'll be happy to send you our series seed deck. Love that. Which actually leads me into my last question is how can people connect with you and your company? Sure. Well, I think I'm pretty public as a profile on LinkedIn under Eric yeah. Schnell, S-C-H-N-E-L-L. And uh, obviously the two brands we're talking about are amood33.com and then uh, my my agency that we um, incubated out of called beyondbrands.org. Awesome. So yeah, awesome. easy to get a hold of. Eric, that is an amazing founder's journey. And I know we probably could have fit another three hours onto this today. So I appreciate the uh, the short, short version. But uh, I think it's a great story about Mood 33 and where you come from and, and all that you infuse into what you do at all levels of the business. So thank you for what you do. Thank you for having me. Lots of love. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you for listening to Lit Up founder's journey a lit up media production i'm your host brian weber this episode was produced by anthony morgola edited by brian weber and anthony morgola theme music by justin cruz of cruise control music links from today's episodes are available in our show notes if you received any value from our show please take a second and leave a review in itunes and share with your friends and colleagues it really helps you can connect with us on our website litupfounders.com Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Lit Up Founders, and on LinkedIn at Lit Up Media. Finally, our email address is feedback at litupmedia.com. Thanks for listening and sharing the journey.